We're going to hear three great encouragements today. We're dipping into the part of Peter's message where he wants to give us the, the clearest and the most potent encouragements. So today we're going to hear three words of encouragement. And on our way there, let's read this section of Peter's letter. We're looking at 1 Peter chapter 2. So it's one of those little books at the back of the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we'll be reading from verse 4 through verse 10. 1 Peter chapter 2. Again, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. 1 Peter chapter 2, and I'll start reading in verse 4, and we'll go through verse 10. This is an important one for us today as gateway. So hear this. As you come to him, the living stone. So he's alive and he's active. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by people but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture, it says, and now he's going to quote from a couple of passages in in Isaiah and in the Psalms, passages, by the way, that Jesus used on a couple of occasions. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, and now he marshals another quote, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you're the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Father, I pray that you'll multiply your truth in our hearts this morning. So we break up in our chests today and we ask that you would speak. And Lord, give us the right encouragement or the right prompting, the right edging in the right direction. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, if you have uh, a program, you should have gotten in your program a little scorecard. Uh, You can uh, take notes and keep up with us at home if you want to. We're going to have three great words of encouragement today. And after three great words of encouragement, I'm going to give you some fill-in-the-blanks. And then after that, there's going to be a little parentheses for each one that you're going to have to write in yourself, again, if you're keeping score at home. So the first great word of encouragement is that God has an address. God has an address. How about that? And if you are adding the parentheses at the end of that, you can do in your own handwriting, it's worth it. God has an address, and then parentheses, it's worth it. All right, God has an address. It's us. He lives here. Stay with me. This is the most important part of what we're going to say today. As you come to him, the living stone, Peter says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house. 
This house is spiritual both in the sense that God's spirit is forming it and also in the sense that it's not physical. And I'm reminded of that children's limerick that I learned as a little kid like in vacation Bible school when my mother would drag me by the ear to vacation Bible school. And some of you heard this if you're 100 years old like I am. Here's the church and here's the steeple. Open the door and there's the people. And that's exactly wrong. The way that limerick should have gone, except that it doesn't rhyme, is here's a big building and there's a big pointy thing on top of it that nobody really understands. Open the door. There's the church. God's address is us. He lives here. We're spiritual stones. The backdrop for what Peter says here is the Old Testament temple. So I want to give you a little history, if I can. When the Jews left Egypt after they crossed through the Red Sea, they noticed that God's presence His literal presence hung in front of them and was leading them in the desert weirdly in a form of a cloud that hovered out in front of them each day everywhere in the direction that they should go. Now, I want you to imagine that there is a skeptical Egyptian who's with these Israelites wandering in the desert seeing the cloud. They'd wake up in the morning, the Egyptian and the Jew would walk out, there's God's presence, and the Egyptian would say, right, the Egyptian would say, dude, it's just a cloud. No, but look, no, but it's hovering there, right where we're supposed to go. No, that's, that's what clouds do, buddy. So they walk through the day. They walk toward the cloud. Next morning, day two, they wake up. There's the cloud hovering out in front of them, Egyptian. Dude, it's still a cloud. It's hovering there. It's what clouds do, man. By day six, clouds still there, clouds in front of them, clouds hovering. Egyptian says, you've got to admit, it's a little weird but it's just a cloud, but he was wrong. The sons of Israel were instructed to build a tabernacle. This was really a tent where they could perform sacrifices and where where they could gather and worship. And at one point, the cloud descended on the tabernacle, and the Old Testament saints come to realize that this was an extraordinarily special place, a place, this tabernacle was a place for God's literal presence. Eventually, they built a temple in Jerusalem. It was an elaborate and fantastic structure built according to God's exact specifications. And while they believe that God created the whole world, and he did, they believe that God inhabited the whole world, and he does, they came to understand that God was in and around the temple in the most peculiar and powerful and extraordinary way. Just like the tabernacle, just like the cloud, God's presence was there. Peter draws on all of that history here in this passage, and in effect, he's saying to these young Gentile converts throughout the provinces of Rome, that's you. You're the temple now. The cloud of God's presence has gathered around you. And when you gather to sing and pray and hear God's word and you hear the guitar start and you stand and you start to sing, that's God's presence. That's God's address. If you took out an envelope, God and you put down the address, the address line would read the church. And if there was a skeptical Northern Virginian here this morning, they might say, dude, that's just a group of people singing. But they're wrong. I don't know how many of you read this report, but Billy Graham went to see the Pope in Rome, and while he was waiting, Billy noticed a red phone as he was being ushered in, and he said, He looked at the Pope and he said, what's the red phone for? And the Pope said, that's to talk to God. Billy Graham grasped. He said, really? How much would 
that kind of call costs, it's a long way. And the Pope said, well, it's $10,000 a minute, but it's worth it. And Billy was amazed, but of course he agreed. It, is, it would be worth it. Some weeks later, Graham went to Jerusalem, and he visited the chief rabbi in Jerusalem. He noticed that the rabbi in his office also had a red phone. I don't suppose Billy asked, this is a phone where you can talk to God. Yes, the rabbi said. How much does that call cost? And the rabbi shrugged, and he said, 25 cents. How come it's so cheap, Billy Graham said. The Pope has a phone just like that. It's $10,000 a minute. The rabbi said, well, from here, it's a local call. Every time... (laughs) Every time you and I gather together to praise God, every time we get on our knees and humble our hearts and speak in Jesus' name, every time we call out to God, it's a local call. God's address is the church. Specifically, it's us. And please notice that we are building together. We are a nation of priests. We're a royal priesthood. All of these descriptions are corporate. Peter is talking about the church. Pause for dramatic effect. If you miss everything else, don't miss this. In this passage, Peter's offering an encouragement. God has an address, and he's talking about the church. He's talking about the church. He said it one more time to be a little weird because they don't realize why he's saying it over and over again. He's talking about the church. So I want you to know, hear me this morning. This challenges those of us who treat the church casually. Some of you are showing up. Some of you come here because church is that thing you go to. I think the Apostle Peter would be amazed, astounded. He might even be offended by that. Church, that's what we're doing together. That's not a thing you go to. You come and you sit back and, oh, come on, tell me something, preacher boy, that will inspire me today. Church is what we're doing together. And it's the hope of the world. You want to know how to respond to the culture? It's not through politics. The hope of America is here. Some of you are like building debris. We're building a building, and and you're just hanging around on the the side, and nobody knows exactly what you don't even remember why we threw you over there. Except in your case, you put yourself over there. Some of you are really well-formed stones, or a really nice piece of steel. And you're just laying on the ground. And we need you. There are people here who have gifts of service. You do it spectacularly. You do it naturally. You like to help other people. And when other people are helped by you, they feel helped. And they don't feel like they owe anything. It's the heart of Jesus, and you're not serving. Why? Some of you have gifts of leadership. If you have gifts of leadership, you have complaints. You're frustrated because things aren't better. Well, guess what? 
Your complaints are probably right, but they're not legitimate. Get in and do something about it. The Apostle Paul said, if you have the gift of leadership, lead. If you have the gift of service, serve. If you have the gift of mercy, be merciful. If you have the gift of administration, administrate. Use your gift. This is it. This isn't a dry run. This is it. This is God's address. We had a a men's breakfast uh, yesterday morning, which was awesome. Thank you, men, for organizing that. The speaker was the guy who was, used to be the chaplain for the Washington Redskins. He was great. But he talked about priorities. And he told the story of a professor who was kind of coaching up a business leader, executive in a, a company, and asking him about his priorities. You know, my kids are my priorities. And basically, he said, baloney. What? Well, how much time do you spend with your kids? Well, names off a little bit of time. Yeah, your kids are not your priority. Let's be real with one another. Well, I know, but I don't have time. Of course you have time. He asked the great question. Those of you who are there, you'll remember this. He said, how many hours a day? He said his professor asked him in a classroom, how many hours a day do you have? Of course, by this point, he said they thought, And we all thought it was a trick question. Nobody was going to answer. Of course, the answer is, how many hours a day do you have? 24. How many hours a day did Jesus have? 24. He managed to get it done to to save the world. No, we're, we're not Jesus, but we have the same amount of time. You've got time for what is your priority. So he looked at the CEO and he said, quit your job. Long story short, he ultimately did and never looked back because he wanted to make what he wanted to be his priorities, his real priorities. If Peter's right, and I'm convinced he is, then God's address should be a priority. Now, I'm not saying that to be self-serving. This is not about me. This is about us. And if Gateway is not a place that you can make a priority, then you need to go find the place that is. It's about being in this, in it, part of the wall, part of the the frame for the ceiling, one of the doors, or out of it. There's not an in-between. Peter is saying to these folks, look, I know your life is, I mean, things are tough and they're about to get tougher. He's writing to people, remember, who are about to face persecution and are at the front edges of it. And Peter's saying, I know it's hard, but it's worth it because this is God's address that you're building. There's a story about a king of Sparta in ancient Greece who was bragging to a visiting monarch about the mighty walls of Sparta. And the guests looked around and didn't see any walls. And finally he said to the host, I'd like to see these great walls of Sparta. Show them to me. And the Spartan ruler pointed with great satisfaction to his disciplined and well-trained troops. And he said, there it is. There's the wall of Sparta. I'm reminded of what Peter said in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21. Consequently, Peter talking to the Ephesian Christians, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household built 
on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. God has an address, and it's us. Now, we're building a building for God. If you're a guest today with us, thanks so much for coming. You need to know that Gateway is in the process of building a building for God. Now, we're also building a facility across the street that we hope will be a message and a reminder and serve to get the message out about God's great love to people all over this area. But the building we're building is right here. In his presence, us gathered together. And by the way, the cornerstone of that building, the foundation itself is Jesus, chosen and precious in God's sight. And what happens in God's building? What happens in God's house? He tells us God's stuff happens in God's house. Specifically, we offer spiritual sacrifices through Jesus. You know, the Old Testament saints had already realized that God wasn't interested in bulls and goats and altars overflowing with blood. Not really. Those were there for us. They were audiovisual aids through which we demonstrated our faith and through which we realized really how costly forgiveness is. But those were and are lesser things. The greater things are humility and brokenheartedness and repentance. The prophets spoke about this. The psalmist wrote hymns about it. Well, in Jesus, this all becomes clearer and more pronounced. Through Jesus, we realize that our efforts to be good and religious, even if they're real, They're only his efforts through us. Through Jesus, we realize we have no possessions or gifts that we could bring to God that would please him. So through Jesus, we offer the only thing we have. We offer ourselves in service and love and praise. I was reading this week an author who was one of the church leaders from the 4th century A.D. And it's just a great reminder. There were a couple this week, a great reminder to me that this message never changes. This guy was the bishop of Milan. His name was Ambrose, and he said this, All the sons and daughters of the church are priests, for we are all anointed, offering ourselves to God as spiritual sacrifices. Okay, so, number one, God has an address. Encouragement word number two, Jesus is a fork. Jesus is a fork. And the parentheses for that is, so don't be surprised. Jesus is a fork. So don't be surprised. Now, I don't mean Jesus is a fork as opposed to a spoon or a knife. I mean by fork that Jesus demands that we choose. He stands in front of us demanding that we decide one way or the other. As I was thinking about this this week, I I remembered a time in my late 20s, I was with a friend of mine who had a brother who was really an acquaintance, but he had a brother who was Down syndrome. And he suffered all kinds of physical problems and health problems, that some of which weren't even related to the Down syndrome, they're just other complications that he was born with. And he, he took a whole a lot of medication. And the whole group of us were praying together one night. And I, this was, you know, you heard me say how old I was, so this was now 114 years ago. But this kid started praying, the brother, Down syndrome brother. And just a really sweet spirit. And 114 years, I still remember his prayer. He prayed, he wished that he could be normal. He wished that he didn't have to take all the medications that he had to take. He wished he could be more like 
the people in the circle and he started naming us. And I wish I could be more like this person and this person and this person. But, you know, God, thank you for the way you've made me. And his brother prayed. And his brother said, thank you, God, that you've made my brother not a pathway to point people in the direction and not a signpost, but a fork in the road that forces them to choose. Jesus presents himself to people, and they must choose. I think of the time when Jesus tells his disciples, if anyone wants to be my student, they have to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow. Why would you gain the world and forfeit your life? What good would that do you? Wouldn't you rather have real life and forfeit the world? On another occasion, he asked his disciples, hey, who do people say I am? And they collected a variety of answers. And then, of course, Jesus gets to the point. What about you? Who do you say I am? Jesus' presence, his teaching, his power, his authority, his strangeness was a fork in the road, and listeners had to decide. So don't be surprised that they make it difficult for you because they've made the other decision. He tells his readers and us, certainly, Some people, Peter reminds us, reject the message of Jesus. And they ultimately stumble and fall. In fact, the rock causes them to fall, according to verse 8. Okay, if you're listening, then you need to recognize this sounds a bit harsh. But Peter got his teaching directly from Jesus. In the face of his severest critics, Jesus quoted this same passage from Isaiah. And then Jesus added this insult to injury. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. This is not an easy thing to swallow. So let's be clear here. This is directed at our enemies. I know this kind of sentiment is out of fashion, but Peter makes it clear that the enemies of our faith, despite what current circumstances may suggest, the enemies of our faith face a future of retribution. I looked at an older commentary, again, about this passage, and I loved what the author said. Straightforward. Again, it just forced me to realize this message never changes. The author said this, The gospel message is conceived of as a challenge demanding men's obedience. And where this is withheld, terrible retribution follows. This is a fierce teaching. As you hear this, Peter writing this, I want us to think about how much Peter's really changed over the years. I I can imagine the younger Peter threatening to cut their ears off or challenging them to a good old-fashioned Galilean butt-whipping. Or, I can imagine him on his worst days joining with the enemies, denying that he even knows these wacky young Gentile converts. But instead, here, the more mature Peter takes a more subtle approach, and you can almost hear the sorrow in his voice when he says, this is what they were destined for. Hit the pause button for a second. Of course, that pronouncement raises that age-old question of God's sovereignty, doesn't it? What do you mean? This is what they were destined for, Peter. That can't be right. That's just not fair. Wait, what? 
And Peter seems to answer this question the same way that the Apostle Paul answered it. I think Peter this morning, if we raised our hand and said, wait, what? They were destined for it. What do you mean, Peter? Wait. They were destined for that. Peter would answer, yes. God is sovereign, and you don't get to argue with that. You don't get to decide what's fair and not fair. God decides that. And if he destines someone for a stumble and a fall, that has nothing to do with you. Your only choice is to accept or not. But wait, he's not finished. Notice what he also said in the same verse. They stumble because they disobey the message. So hang on. Well, which is it, Peter? (laughs) Do they choose badly and stumble? Or did God predestine them for this? And I'm convinced Peter's answer is yes. Bottom line, young Gentile converts, they're making it difficult for you. That's because Jesus is a fork. And they've chosen to go the other way. So don't be surprised at what he's going to call the fiery ordeal around you. But remember, they will ultimately stumble and fall. Encouragement word number three comes after what is probably the most dramatic but in the whole of Scripture. And you heard it here on Sunday morning. There is a dramatic but in Scripture. It comes in verse 9, but you. They are going to stumble and fall, but you. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. Encouragement word number three, this is huge. And we're part of it. This is huge, and we're part of it. And if you're writing your parentheses underneath that, a parentheses in addition to the parentheses, then write down, so stay in the game. Stay in the game. So what is it that's huge? Well, it's not us. It's not our story. What's huge is the story of God, and we get swept up into God's story. This is all God's story, chosen, holy, belonging to God, people of God, receiving mercy. This is God's activity on our behalf. And by this is God's activity. I mean all of it. I mean us. I mean this. Here's the deal. Somewhere deep inside of you, you know that God is at work in you. You know that makes your life extraordinarily important and purposeful. Eternity is literally at stake in your life and actions. Hold on to that. Believe it. And stay in the game. First of all, because it's true. And secondly, because it encourages it. It puts wind in your sails. Let's add a couple of illustrations to help us here. Just a couple of months ago, I used an illustration. If you're a guest, you obviously haven't heard it, but... Years ago, I was listening to this minister, and he talked about how he's a huge Cowboys fan, Dallas Cowboys. And he pastored a church in Hawaii. So the games happened usually, if they were Sunday afternoon game, they happened hours before, and he was still asleep when Dallas was playing their game. And he would tape the games, and he would watch the games after he got home from church. But he was such a huge fan, you know, he felt like he said, you know, I, I was repeatedly in danger of having a heart attack. This was during the Troy Aikman era in Dallas when they actually had a football team down there. And so he would come home every Sunday and listen to the Dallas game and it just drive him crazy. Until, he said, he learned to listen to the sports radio on the way home 
from church to find out the score of the game. It helped him immensely in watching the Cowboys game because he would sit down, he would turn on the television, he'd grab himself lunch, and he would watch the game that he already knew the end of. Now, usually, those of you who are Cowboy fans will remember, usually, for the Cowboys during that era, the story ended very, very well. So it didn't matter how far behind the Cowboys got. It didn't matter how it looked. It didn't matter if Emmett Smith fumbled the ball in the second quarter twice. It didn't matter if Troy Aikman threw a critical interception at the beginning of the fourth quarter because he knew the end of the game. He knew who was going to win. So he could ride through all of those difficulties effortlessly because he knew the end of the game. We know the end of the story. Illustration number two. I don't know how many of you heard this story this week. If you were listening to Fox or CNN, you may have. But there was a plane on its way to London when a blonde woman who was sitting in economy class got up and moved to one of the open seats in first class section. Flight attendant saw her do this and wasn't the ticket that she'd paid for. So the, the flight attendant addressed her and said, I'm sorry, but you're going to have to return to your seat. And the woman said, I'm blonde, I'm beautiful, I'm going to London, and I'm staying right here. The flight attendant didn't know what to do, so she went to get another flight attendant. I, I think that's what CNN said. She went to get another flight attendant, and this flight attendant was a little more forceful. Said, I'm sorry, madam, you're going to have to go back to your seat. No, I'm blonde, I'm beautiful, I'm going to London, and I'm staying right here. So the flight attendants went up to the cockpit. The co-pilot opens the door. They tell the co-pilot what's going on. The co-pilot comes back, comes to the woman. Sorry, ma'am, but this is not your seat. You're going to have to return to your seat. The, the woman says, I'm blonde, I'm beautiful, I'm going to London, and I'm staying right here. So they didn't know what to do, so they went back into the cockpit, and they told the captain. The captain said, you watch the plane for a second. He goes back leans down and whispers something in the woman's ear that nobody can hear, goes back to the cockpit, the woman gets up, goes back to her seat in economy class and moves. Plane lands in London, everybody deboards. The flight crew can't figure out what happened. So they go to the captain and they say, Captain, how in the world did you get her to move back to economy class? And the captain said, I told her that first class wasn't going to London. I promise that's the only dumb blonde joke I'm going to tell this year. (laughs) So, first class isn't moving in the stream of God. First class isn't connected to the kingdom. First class isn't going to heaven. First class, and by first class I mean having everything the world affords us, that does not give life. It does not provide for joy and meaning. So don't be a dumb blind. All right, listen. We live in first class, but we're not part of first class. I rediscovered this joke this week in one of my old sermons. Years ago, I preached through the book of 1 Peter to the congregation where I pastored before Diane and I moved to Northern Virginia. And those of you who know mine and Diane's story, you know that that congregation was very different from Gateway. We lived and pastored in the inner city in Boston. 
our congregation was made up mostly of blue-collar and working poor. This illustration meant something entirely different to them than it does to us. In my notes, I noticed I told those guys not to pursue first class. I have some specific notes in there. I want you to enrich your lives, I told them. I want you to do better. I'm proud of you, Mary Lou. And I talked about Mary Lou specifically because, Diane, you remember, Mary Lou had just gotten out of prison. She went to prison for 13 months for breaking and entering. She had a drug problem. Mary Lou had gotten her life together in prison and started coming to our congregation. And the state of Massachusetts had offered to send Mary Lou to this new program for reforming inmates where they would pay for some kind of technical training or some kind of schooling to give them a a leg up on a career. And Mary Lou was going to school to learn how to run a florist shop, right, or how to do the flowers and how to do the business. I said, I'm proud of you, Mary Lou, but don't think that that will satisfy you. First class will not satisfy you. Only Jesus can do that, I said. But for us, it's different. We're sitting in first class. We've got the soft, roomy seats and the hot towels. We've got the personal service and the warm thank yous. You and I need to be reminded of something different. You and I need to be reminded that we're not here for our own enjoyment. We're here as missionaries. This is not our home. We're exiles here. We're only here. We're only here to offer life to those who are sinking under the realization that they made it to first class only to discover that they're still not satisfied. This is huge. Not first class, not the accoutrements of our world, but the work of God is huge. The movement of God, the life of God, it's huge. And we get to be part of it. So stay in the game. The Apostle Paul put it like this, hey, don't grow weary in doing good. Because in due season, this thing's going to blow up. I honestly believe that's a word for gateway. So I want to say to those of you who've been hanging in there with us for years, thank you. Stay in the game. And for those of you who have not yet gotten in the game, this is huge. And we need you. So get off of the sidelines. If you're a piece of steel, we need you. You need to be a wall. For some of you, you need to be in our ceiling holding up the roof. And if you're not going to be, we kind of need you to move on. And let us know. Let's pray. Lord, we need your encouragement today. So we receive this morning the reminder that you actually live here among us. This is your home. And you're building us into your temple. We also receive, Lord, the profound word about Jesus our cornerstone, precious and chosen, but also a fork in the road. And we're grateful, many of us, Father, for 
your inspiration for your movement in our lives that we've chosen the right fork. Lord, there may be others here today who they've not chosen you. And today, Father, I pray honestly that you would present yourself as an obstacle and that today would be the day of choice, the day of saying yes to you. Lord God, we praise you because this is huge. And we are honored to be part of it. In the strong name of Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.